what are those sort of inflection points in that conversation with like a you know random less technical person where can you have that impact how can you like help them understand the sort of threat model that they face in everyday life welcome to the cyber ranch podcast recorded under the big blue skies of texas where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts here's your host alan alford president and CISO at alan alford consulting Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Lee Honeywell, CEO over at Tall Poppy. They are not what you typically think of when you think of cybersecurity vendor. And I asked Lee to come onto the show to share the story of what exactly they are up to over there. No, Tall Poppy is not sponsoring the show, and yes, Lee is a friend. She's also about as unvendory as it gets, so I will probably even have to poke her a bit to be more vendory here and there, because uh, I really want to hear about Tall Poppy. They're doing some really cool stuff. So Lee's been a venture partner. She's been a technology fellow at the ACLU. She's held some security roles at Slack and Heroku as well. Sounds pretty much like pure Bay Area, but in another plot twist, she is in Canada. So Lee is a super cool person. Her company is up to some really cool and interesting things. And I just wanted this whole conversation to be sort of about breaking the mold of what we think of as cybersecurity. So Lee, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you very much for hosting. I really, really appreciate the chance to talk to you about this stuff. This is too cool. So let's start with a broader question to kind of start the conversation here. What is personal security outside the firewall? So I love thinking about what we do um, as being around people's personal security infrastructure. When we think of the sort of day-to-day of corporate cybersecurity work and sort of gave a bit of pricey of my resume earlier, I, I worked at security on security teams at companies like Microsoft, Salesforce, uh, and Slack in the past. And we were really thinking about those sort of corporate assets. What are the, you know, what are the assets within the organization that we're here to defend? Um, and you've got your SIM and you've got your like SecOps infrastructure, your code, code review. You've got the corporate email assets, all of these different internal assets. Um, the work that we do at Tall Poppy is really focused on the stuff that is outside of that corporate firewall. It's your personal digital infrastructure, your personal accounts. Um, the, the sort of day-to-day stuff of your digital life that is not really your work, but often kind of bleeds into your work in one way or another, whether it's because somebody messing with your kid's Instagram account, you're stressed out about it in your day job, um, or if you become personally targeted as a result of some of the work that you're doing. Uh, occasionally, adversaries have been known to go after personal email accounts, personal social media, that sort of personal digital footprint outside of that, that corporate infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And, and I've seen it, I've seen it go the other direction too. I'm thinking of when I was an IT manager back before I, so my security journey was product security became CISO, but before product security, I was an IT infrastructure guy, just an IT ops guy. I was a manager, director of IT. And um, I had an employee come to me who was receiving just absolute nasty emails at work at his work address from his ex's ex, or from his current ex, rather. Um, and this this other fellow outside the company decided to target this guy everywhere he could, inside work, outside work, whatever. And I was able to send a sternly worded, you were abusing, you know, company systems and blah, 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 cease and desist kind of meant nothing, but it sounded good. The, the sort of pseudo error message of like, this violation will be recorded. 
<laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I was able to I was able to bluff him into at least quitting to use our work address, but he was still stalking this guy on a personal level, and there was nothing I could do to help him. Right, like this was and this was years ago, but um, yeah, it's, you know, I, I you see that boundary get crossed both directions. I guess is the point I'm trying to make. I was just going to say we see we definitely see both sides of it. Both folks get targeted in their personal capacity because of something you know maybe a policy decision that the company made or like a, an unpopular change to some like video game or whatever, right? We work with a lot of video game companies um, or it's exactly the kind of scenario you described where there's, there's something in the person's personal life that is sort of bleeding into the work environment or affecting the work environment. And much like we see with sort of physical workplace safety issues, we see that, that blurring on the digital safety side as well. So, so that ties into these concepts of executive protection, right? And and this is one that I, you know, people talk about executive protection, and the first thing I always picture is the big armored SUV with the electric minigun firing so many 308 cases that they're having to use the windshield wipers just to see through their own bullet casings. And that's what I think of as executive protection, right? Um, how do you guys see that? Like, how does that overlap with this digital realm? I think cer- certainly traditional executive protection, people really think of it as being the sort of gun, guns, gates and guards lives under the CISO, not the CISO risk, like sort of the corporate risk management. Um, and they're, you know, that physical security piece, absolutely still part of the puzzle. Um, but I think the, you know, certainly where our work touches and um, as I think about the, the bigger picture around executive protection, there's really two other pieces that I, I feel like a lot of traditional physical security um, perspectives don't necessarily take into account. The first is the data footprint, um, particularly in the States. I mean, joked about me being in Canada. I spent a fair bit of time in the States and uh, the, the privacy laws in the States are not so good. Like we have CCPA now that's starting to come into effect, but the, you know, the, the, there aren't that level of like privacy laws with serious teeth um, that there are in a number of other places in the world. Plus, it's the biggest market. So if you want to be buying and selling consumer information, people's home addresses, personal info, putting it on the Internet, like your biggest, most lucrative market, it's going to be the states. And there is a whole ecosystem of companies that just like take people's home addresses and put them on on Google and being able to say like, hey, making sure that my executive team isn't super trivial to like track down people's home addresses. That actually takes like a fair bit of work. Um, and so that is that is some of the work that we do. Um, I think there's there's sort of regulatory and um, policy level things that I hope will make that work obsolete because I think that people do deserve to have privacy. Um, certainly, like the bar should at least be like you have to go down to the county records office to like look somebody up if you want to find their home address versus it just being on the homepage of Google. Um, so there's that sort of data footprint uh, privacy piece. The second piece is that the highest profile people within your organization is publicly public facing sort of uh, C-level role holders, their personal accounts, whether or not you know it, are under constant attack. Um, they're such an easy entry point, whether it's for competitive intelligence, whether it's for nation state, like surveillance, all of these different adversaries. Yes, they're trying to break into your corporate infrastructure. But sometimes it's a lot easier to just break into the CEO's personal accounts in order to get the sort of the the digital chaff that like 
you know, spills out from that work account. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Into every those every now and again accounts. in a pinch, you might email your personal account to print the thing or send yourself exactly. a reminder or whatever. Exactly. Like it's, it's 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 a tenth or maybe even only a hundredth of the actual traffic that you'd find in the corporate account, but there's still something there. There's still some there. And we've seen, you know, the breaches that I worked over the years in my sort of more traditional cybersecurity roles, we would often see there be pivoting from those personal accounts, whether it was through password reuse or um, the sort of hybrid accounts that you see, stuff like GitHub, where it has your work email and your personal email associated with it, that pivoting from personal accounts into corporate infrastructure is a really, really common feature of of some of the more interesting attacks I've seen in my career. Yeah. Oh, and I was just thinking, too, using the personal as the backup address, right? Like I'm I'm whatever at company.com and I register and sign up for MFA, but oh, oh, my backup is whatever at personal.com. Yep. And that's where, you know, those corporate level policies around like what kind of addresses do people allow for their G Suite lockout kind of recovery. I just went through this with one of my one of my side projects. I was like, oh, yeah, that's enabled. I probably shouldn't be able to put a personal account for recovery here. So think, thinking through like what are the sort of second order implications of having that commingling of personal and um and private. And I think one of the the sort of executive protection spin on it is really that as security practitioners, there's like a pretty frequent joke that like the C-suite is the biggest threat to the company. It's, I wouldn't say it's the biggest, but it's often not a trivial one. And I think the there's a different kind of motivation when you're getting somebody to take better security practices around their own personal digital infrastructure than when you're trying to get them to do it for work. And I think that applies just as much to executives as it does to individual contributors, right? Where, you know, maybe it's somebody worried about that like X, but, you know, you're talking to your executives and, hey, you know, we want to make sure that your personal infrastructure is locked down. And in the background, you can be like, because we also need to protect the organization. But the motivation is that sort of internal motivation because it's their personal infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is interesting. So we, we get away from the physical security and the big armored SUVs and we get into this overlapping world of personal accounts and digital footprint um, and, and these things that make a, a CEO or a CISO or a CIO, whoever it might be, pick pick your C-suite, what, whatever makes them present as, as an attack surface basically in the world. And then that makes me want to flip the other direction and talk about, you know, we hear all the time about protecting our kids online because that's the attack surface we're talking about with them. That's 100% of their attack surface, right? And yet, how many cybersecurity startups and cyber companies can tackle that piece, like, meaningfully, right? Like, we think of cybersecurity startups as, like, you know, B2B, right? Like, that's what everyone thinks of when they think of cybersecurity. And yet, some of what you're talking about is very clearly B2C here. Like, talk to me about the kids. Like, how does that tie into all this? I think the biggest, um, one of my one of my personal influencers in, in thinking about sort of the, the question of how you protect kids online um, is a writer named Deborah Heitner. And she talks a lot about this idea of mentoring over monitoring. Um, there's, you know, there are companies out there, you can buy their app to like spy on your kids and sort of watch what their traffic is online and all of that stuff. Um, I think that, you know, there's a time and place for that. There are situations where that's appropriate. But I think the vast majority of cases, certainly like, you know, I, I grew up on the internet. So I had to send a fax to California when COPPA came in because I had a GeoCities page that I signed up to before I turned 13. Um, and, uh, you know, had to get permission to continue to have my GeoCities page. But you know, all of this said, like, um, 
having mentorship, having adults, responsible adults in your life who can help you navigate as you get access to different online content, different online apps, to be able to like use those responsibly, use those safely, have that like open conversation with your parents, with like other trustworthy adults in your life about like, hey, I had this interaction, it made me uncomfortable. What should I do about it? Or hey, how do I, I as an, as a growing like a person who's growing up, like how do I keep my online account safe? Like I've got this little notebook I write down the passwords in. Maybe that's not the right way to do it. What should I be using instead? And I think building out that sort of curriculum of like what is there to keep kids safe? What are the sort of mechanical, technical basics of password managers and two-factor authentication on all of these sort of like digital hygiene pieces? But a lot of it is also the sort of how to have boundaries around what you share and where you share it. Um, a lot of it is like interpersonal relationship stuff too. Like kids are figuring out how to like be human beings around each other. And that happens to be expressed in a lot of ways via TikTok and Instagram. But these are fundamentally still like interpersonal skills that people are going to need for the rest of their lives. Right on, right on. All right, but there's there's some real intersection there though with with the execs and the kids, in terms of like you just said. I mean, you just rattle off essentially. You know, get a password manager, right? This is a good corporate thing for your CEO. You, you rattle <laughs> off, you know, w- watch what you say and where you say it. You never know who's listening and paying attention. Well, that's good rules for a CEO. Like, it's it's really the same rule set. It's just a different way of looking at it because we normally, you know. Like I said, everybody's just cybersecurity startup equals B2B equals give me a tech for my stack that I deploy within an IT context at a corporation and that's cybersecurity. And you're sort of stepping away from that a little bit, it feels like to me, and kind of getting into some fundamental tenets behind all that. And lo and behold, they're the same for the kid at home as they are for the CEO in a corporation. I think it has to be a lot more carrots and fewer sticks when it's that personal cybersecurity piece because in in the way that like, if you're a company, you get to just sort of as, you know, as the CISO or the CIO or whoever's in charge of security, you kind of just get to say like, we're rolling CrowdStrike out, we're rolling out SIM, whatever the sort of infrastructure is, like you get to set that by policy. When you're trying to like, you know, we, we, we do sell B2B, we're working with companies who want their employees to be safer. And it's fundamentally like about influence. It's fundamentally about like nudging people into better security behaviors, identifying those points of motivation and using those, those motivations to, to nudge people into positive security behaviors. Um, the one other thing that comes up a lot, uh, especially increasingly, I think recently, um, you know, we talk about kids and how do you keep kids online? A lot of folks have vulnerable adults in their life, whether it's a parent, whether it's a sibling who's got mental illness, um, all of these different situations where you might have an adult who has some degree of capacity or lack of capacity, and you have to figure out how to keep them out of out of digital trouble. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that intersects with the legal system in interesting ways with stuff like guardianships. But um, wanting to be able to give people as much autonomy as as they can reasonably handle while also keeping them safe, I think is a it's it's one of the really interesting, like social technical challenges of our time. Sure, and the, you know you you brought up the whole like mentoring over monitoring, um, and I would say monitoring over enforcement, right? Like, I've got a kiddo, I got a kiddo at home, and uh, her peer group they've got the little um, instead of a phone they've got the watch, and it allows them to answer the call from mom, text back with mom, and that's about it, right? Like you can't install apps, you can't play, you can't have fun, you can't go surf the web, you can't do the things. It's enforcement. 
I found her a phone from a company out of Arizona, a little startup called Cyberdive, that does a comprehensive monitoring solution, but it's it's completely um, lateral to her experience. In other words, she can use the phone all day long and do whatever she wants to do. And if I happen to log into the app on my end, I can actually see, oh, she's downloaded this game. Oh, here's a here's a video capture moment of a chat session of, you know, whatever it might be. So I can I can keep a distant eye on her behavior kind of thing. And then there's the, you know, and then there's the option like you said of mentorship. Well, with a 10-year-old, you know, like we're we're struggling on the mentorship piece. We're still working on that. We're getting there. So so I'm complimenting with some monitoring myself. But again, this whole this whole personal lives versus business lives, like the fact that you've got these B2B clients, it's, it's again, we're saying it's the same story. My 10-year-old, I'm having to do a combination of, if you think about it, mentoring is effectively policy, monitoring is effectively auditing, and enforcement is effectively your, your tech stack, your, your, you know, your whatever, your, your CASB and your EDR and your, you know, DLP and your da-da-da-da-da. Um, it's the same, we're, we're once again looking at the same paradigm. So the principles are the same everywhere here. We're just applying them in different ways. And this is so fascinating to me that more companies aren't aren't embracing this sort of out of the, you know, how do I put it? Like, slap me on the rack and call me a security solution kind of an approach. Let's pause right there real quick for a word from our sponsor. Do you want to make cloud security risks a no-brainer and remove friction between your security and dev teams? Well, Daz takes the pain out of the cloud remediation process using automation and intelligence to discover, reduce, and fix security issues. Lightning fast. Daz prioritizes alerts, shrinks backlog to actionable root causes, and improves mean time to remediation from weeks to hours. And best of all, keeps your developers focused on what they love doing most, coding. Visit daz.io slash demo and see for yourself. That's D-A-Z-Z dot I-O slash demo. Well, and I think it's we've even seen the evolution there with from from the sort of like the box on the network to the the sort of cloud service, the thing that plugs into your SSO and the whole the rise of CASB and all of these. You know, I, I feel like there's still it, how many years into like the cloud revolution? When was when was the Phoenix Project? Was that like oh, 2007 geez, or something? I was going to say it's been almost 20 <laughs> years now. Like we we it's talk about this new cloud thing. It's been around for yeah. a while. And I feel like we're still, there's, you know, and this is why like cybersecurity startups are like the most funded startups out there because there's just, there's still so much greenfield. And I feel like the, you know, when I think about the history of personal cybersecurity, we look at like the rise of antivirus and that was like, that was the thing for a few decades. And then we got VPNs, which are like kind of a solution in some specific cases, but probably not most of the time. And then we have password managers, which were like, a major, major advancement. And that's kind of it, right? If you think about sort of the personal, like if you're, you know, your random relative who's not at all technical was like, hey, Alan, like what should I do to improve my security? Or the ta- the taxi driver conversation. That was when I was living in San Francisco before I moved back to Canada, I, you know, would inevitably, so I, I joke that I have resting Canadian face and like people will just like talk to me. <laughs> so I'm in a, you know, a Lyft or a taxi or whatever. And oh, what do you do? Oh, I do cybersecurity stuff. Oh, you know, my my aunt got fished last week. It's terrible. Oh, yeah, that's terrible. What should I do? How do I keep myself safe? And I would always like hammer the drum of password managers. And just like, unfortunately, I got a lot of random Lyft drivers in San Francisco probably use LastPass because of conversation. <laughs> <laughs> 
to my eventual chagrin. But, uh, you know, having that, like, what are those sort of inflection points in that conversation with like, a, you know, random, less technical person? Where can you have that impact? How can you like, help them understand the sort of threat model that they face in everyday life? And fundamentally like so much of it just comes down to credential stuffing like my my life is credential stuffing fundamentally <laughs> right i get yeah. that i get that but it's you know it's it's attack surface management is what we're really doing all the time right you're either managing that attack surface or you're or you're compensating or addressing or you know it's the same things we do with risk right transfer mitigate accept you know attack surface it's there and 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 what what your fundamental proposition is over there at tall poppy is you guys are saying the attack surface is outside your corporate firewalls like it's 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 out here in the world too and and that brings me up to another one uh and let's see if we can play this same game of like personal life versus corporate life there's the intersection there and that's the online harassment thing right like we all know we're potentially victims of that from a from a personal level right like you post some unpopular opinion on reddit and suddenly you get slagged and then you get your reddit stalker who goes back and negatively comments on every single post you've ever made, you know, in the entire history or whatever, and then finds you on LinkedIn and da-da-da-da. But it can extend into the corporate space, I know for a fact, because I received this really freaky email about a month ago. Um, there's this guy in the industry, I'm not going to name him because I don't want to further contribute to the shaming, but basically there's a dude in the industry, I don't know from a hole in the ground, but, but I went and looked. Yes, he's real. Yes, he's on LinkedIn. Yes, he's got some role in cybersecurity. And he's got some detractor, and I think it's the, the girl's ex thing again. I think it's the exact same scenario as what it felt like to me. Just this this scathing email slagging this guy, slagging his background, slagging his past, slagging the ex, slagging the, you know, accusing them of, like, demonism and just all kinds. Of, I mean, it just it was all over the map. And it was all about what a facade and sham and fakery this and evil Satan worshiping that. And just it was so over the top that no sane human would ingest this email and even bother to give it any credence whatsoever. But... This was very deliberately being done to sabotage this person's professional career, bottom line. Like, it was attacking them first and foremost from a professional perspective, and this is obviously an online harassment spilled into, you know, the attack surface spilled into the corporate world, right? Like, this was one where the outside kind of came in. But there's got to be other stories like that of, of this blurring line between those two in that space. Yeah, I think it's, I think we really do see it in both directions. We see folks that, like the case that you mentioned, where this is, some sort of personal interpersonal conflict. Maybe there's like, we are, unfortunately, we often see it in situations where there's been some kind of like domestic violence or domestic intimate partner abuse, the, the current term, um, where part of how the perpetrator goes after their target is by targeting them in the workplace. Um, and we've, we've done a, a, a number of sort of incident response engagements with companies where like that's, that's what's happened. We've hired somebody, they, it turned out, you know, have been experiencing this sort of stalking and harassment situation for quite some time. It picks up again when they change jobs because often the harassers are like monitoring the LinkedIn. Oh, there's a job change. Here's a new set of people for me to bother. A new attack service, yeah. This person hasn't had a chance to warn their IT yet. It's a, exactly, it's a new attack surface. So that there's that sort of, um, one of the things that, um, comes up has come up a couple of times in conversations over the years where folks are like, you know, this it's the anonymity of the internet. Like people are enabled, feel enabled to be like way more horrible than they otherwise would be. And I think the difference is not that people are worse. It's that it's visible and tangible in a way, you know, you think about stuff like street harassment, right? Like catcalling that has gone on since time immemorial, but there, there's a, 
there isn't, it's sort of ephemeral. It happens to you in a one-on-one kind of way while you're walking past this construction site. And unless you happen to be wearing a body cam, like there's no record of it. Whereas when you're like, you get an email at your work email or you get voicemails or these other sort of tangible forms of contact, contact, there's a, there's a level of like visibility and sort of undeniability of it that I think is, is very new. And, you know, when it happens in public, when it happens on Twitter or LinkedIn or any of these social platforms, it's visible to other people too. And so people are like, oh my God, this, this widespread problem. And here we have like, you know, you look at the sort of folks that have done activism around street harassment and they're like, yeah, this has been going on for a while. But all of a sudden it's visible in a way that it wasn't. And I think that's that's one of the things that's that's really interesting about this as like a social problem. And so that's sort of talking about the like the personal becomes work. And then there's the work becomes personal, which is you know, that sort of you've made a policy change that some percentage of your user base is mad about. And we, we see this with organizations that have trust and safety teams is the big one where there's any sort of like you ban some set of users for doing crappy behavior, whether it's like swearing in video games or like posting Nazi memes or whatever the sort of like unwanted and negative content is. Turns out when you ban people for being antisocial, some of them will continue to be antisocial to the people that banned them. Shocking, right? Um, so it's it's one of the sort of like, yeah, that actually that sort of follows. Um, but I think the you know, thinking about the ways that those like workplace policies can result in the people implementing the policies being targeted, I think is a, is a really interesting part of the puzzle for organizations to figure out like how to, you know, there's always been like the unpopular spokesperson. I think of the Iraq, the, the guy that they threw the shoe at was, oh no, yeah. Um, the sort of like the, the visible person representing the organization. There, there's always been a history of that. Um, but I think the, that person wasn't always on Twitter, (laughs) right. Or wasn't, didn't have their own presence by which you could contact them. I think that's the thing that is, is new and different about the sort of dynamics of social media. Yeah. There's, you know, this calls to mind suddenly like three things at once I'm thinking of. So one is I'm a gamer, right. And it's insane to see in the gaming world, how often the audience gets riled over what should be just trivial stuff. And game companies are constantly facing DDoSs and all kinds of stuff, oftentimes triggered by nothing more than they they change this one skin or they change this one rule or they nerf this one weapon. They dared or they, to have women characters. Yeah, or whatever. Yeah, whatever the the the, 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 the perceived they? slight might be. Like like that crowd gets rabid, man. And and suddenly there's DDoSs and it's a it's a huge corporate threat as a result of something that started in the personal space spilling into the corporate space because you know you DDoS the company revenues are gone, right? Like it's it matters. And then the other thing I'm thinking of is um, Elon Musk. Like, here's the CEO who has willfully begun this kind of process we're describing, right? The social media, the the the, the social media equivalent of the catcalling and the and the starting the fights and the like. That dude has put a beat on himself a bazillion times over and doesn't seem to care. Like he just keeps going, right? Like, I, it would be fascinating to me to see what kind of retribution is coming his way that he's just sloughing off and, and, and dealing with because he, he clearly is sloughing it off and dealing with it because he keeps going. I heard somebody refer to, to what's happening on Twitter a couple months ago as um, parlorization or gabization. And um, the, the sort of, there's like two sides of it. And that refers to two of these sort of like marginal uh, 
relatively unmoderated right-wing social media websites. Um, and the fundamental dynamic that I think is happening in a lot of ways on Twitter is that the the power many of the power users who made the platform as popular and influential as it was, um, as the sort of Elon Musk like content moderation philosophical changes, shall we say, have rolled out over the last few months. They're like, I, I don't want to be here anymore. And the conversation, you know, some of the some of the like uh, quantitative research that has been done. I think the Anti Defamation League came out with some stats that I think the Anti Defamation League and the Center for Countering Digital Hate came out with a report saying anti Semitism was up fifty one percent like on the site in the last couple of months. There have been some similar reports around anti-LGBTQ content. It's it like it turns out when you fire all the moderators and delete the policies that say like don't misgender people and use slurs and stuff on the site, people start doing that. And um it's uh it's interesting because I think the um the sort of moderation direction of the site is aligned with the people that would normally be the ones sending like the death threats and otherwise being crappy. Um, but I, I am, I think you make a really good point, which is like, who is then going to like get mad at Elon? There have already been a couple of situations where prominent accounts have gotten banned for, you know, even more over the line, anti-Semitism or racism or otherwise like nasty content. And when they have, when under Elon, when those accounts have been banned, he has personally gotten a bunch of like people yelling at him on his own platform, which is sort of like, yeah, that's, that's kind of what happens. So it's, uh, it, it's going to be an interesting, you know, I, I am surprised that the site is still up given how many people have gotten laid off. Uh, but it's, you know, it's going to be an interesting next few months to see how it evolves and how, um, how many people yeah, stick and, around, frankly? And I, and I bring it up not not because of any, you know, we can get into politics, we can get into, you know, the humanistic aspects of it and all that. But strictly stepping back from all of that and just simply looking at it as, as a case study of C-suite as public figure, dude, there is no more public figure C-suite than Elon Musk. Like that is as public figure as a C-suite can possibly be. And there he's, is no more divorced public figure than Elon Musk. In there the, you like, go. But, extremely but, you know, divorced sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but the point is, he's out there more than anybody's out there. I, you know, like like most most CEOs try to lay low for the most part. Maybe occasionally we'll step in and make a public statement about some particular thing or another. But for the most part, CEOs are a, are a self anonymized crowd. Like like self uh, self. They're a private crowd is the word I'm looking for, I guess. And he's gone the polar opposite of that. Like 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 full scale public. Like as public as public can be, CEO. And I can't help but feel that that what he faces and what he deals with is very different from Joe Average CEO or Jane Average or whoever it might be. It like really frankly, it it, it looks like watching someone self destruct. It it is so like it's really painful to watch. Um, in terms of just like, and there, a, f- a bunch of friends were joking about how he's he's speed running the history of like forum drama. Uh, I don't know if he's not. <laughs> <laughs> in the 90s and 2000s that is, that is but you know the mod gets mad and deletes yeah, the yeah, whole yeah. site or, like, bands goes on a yeah. drunken bender and obviously yeah. musk doesn't drink but you know like perma, perma bands yeah yeah they're, they're, they're sort of rage like, quitting and perma banning instead of having sort of like a a degree of of 
like emotional sobriety in in the moderation of the website he really seems to be running it in the absolute opposite way and, right and right right he's, of, he's contributing to the shenanigans for sure like a flighty teenager yeah so all right so so we we kind of went down a rabbit hole with that one um but let's uh let's pull back out and and get back to the topic at hand so we've kind of covered uh, sort of attack surface from that personal perspective versus that corporate perspective and how much overlap there can be number one but also number two how even if they aren't necessarily overlapped per se, that the methods and models are really pretty similar anyway, right? Like you may not have a personal event spills over into your corporate life, but the types of attacks and defenses are the same in both realms regardless, right? So so that brings us to kind of the whole conclusion. This is what you guys do over at Tall Poppy, but I, I wanted the listeners to hear, because you told me this story, and this is a really cool story. What the heck does Tall Poppy mean? I think folks need to understand that name and why you chose it. <laughs> So, um, you know, we, we talked about the U.S. and Canada. So I, I was living in the States for uh, when I started the company, I was still living in the States. Um, but I am from Canada. Uh, and in Canada and other Commonwealth countries, there is this this term called tall poppy syndrome. It's a it's a very different sort of culture than the very like bootstraps. Like you can you can be president if you try hard enough of the U.S. It's much more it's a very like it's kind of a nasty function of like commonwealth culture to be honest but the fundamental thing of tall poppy syndrome is that these cultures tend to like kind of cut people down if they stick their head up too high like they rise above their station is the sort of like posh like way to put it and um fundamentally like we protect the tall poppies we protect the people who stick their necks out the people who like rise above who run for office or like start companies or try to change the world in one way or another. Um, I think it's it's really important that those folks have access to protection and resources um, to be able to do that work. Right on. So the tall poppy is the one that gets harvested unless you get help. Unless you get help. Yeah. There are there's a couple of similar phrases in other parts of the world. Um, in the American South, the terms crab the term crabs in a bucket gets used as a sort of like kind of like keeping people in, in like a bad state or in suffering. And in other parts of the world, people talk about the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. Right, right, so right. The squeaky wheel gets the grease. And but although like that's the opposite. Way. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's actually the opposite. In this yeah, case, the squeaky wheel right. gets ripped off. <laughs> yeah, so that is our goal is to try and protect those tall poppies. Right on. All right, well, Lee Honeywell, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. <laughs>